righty. Help to start on the right page here. Okay, since Kano was founded, we've had a handful of these um, point-counterpoint messages in which we would debate various issues and discussing various Christian perspectives. I remember back at the temple, we had one on baptism. We explored various perspectives on that. We had one more recently on like the just war theory and versus pacifism and just looking at both of those from a Christian perspective. And if you remember the most recent one, um, we talked about David's 60s music and then actually good music. And we had a clear winner on, on that in terms of what was, what was good. But uh, anyway, the point of point-counterpoint is not to pick the Christian position or the Cana position. The point is to show that there's often more than one Christian perspective on tough contemporary issues that's based on scripture, tradition, and conscience. And so we're going to look at a hot potato issue this morning, and that's politics. Specifically, should a Christian be involved in politics? And as Justice and I discuss and debate this issue, we are going to do, do so by affirming the following. And I just wanted to read these over to you. First of all, that we pro proclaim faith over politics. And we affirm that our faith will motivate political and social action uh, while we uh, affirm that. We agree that our mutual faith in Christ ultimately matters more than temporal, political, and social beliefs. We also agree to disagree. While we agree on the core tenets of the Christian faith, we recognize that there are deep differences of belief across the Christian church on vital issues of our day. And we recognize that sincere Christians have come to diverse conclusions based on their reading of the Bible, their conscience, their values, their understanding of the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And so we agree to disagree in Christ-like unity in these areas of theological, political, social, and economic dispute. And then finally, we agree to engage. We renew our commitment to engage each other in a healthy, ongoing dialogue on disputed manners as we seek greater understanding of the issues, underlying causes, biblical perspectives, and ultimately each other. And so while we do that this morning, you know, here in church and, and focusing on these things, I mean, I think the goal is that we can all do this as we engage each other um, in daily life. So there you go. Oh, you're over there. Go for it. So uh, 56 years ago this week was the March on Washington uh, for jobs and for freedom. Um, so this would be one of the most historic gatherings um, over the past, uh, well, maybe 50 to 100 years. Uh, it's estimated that uh, around 250,000 people came and showed up for this, and uh, the probably the most classic moment of the whole day would um, be Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, uh, which is sort of frequently cited as one of the culminating events that led to the passing of the Civil Rights Act in 1964. So MLK is one of the most famous religious and political figures in recent history, considered by many of his peers as taking up the role of the Old Testament prophets. In fact, his close friend and partner, 
and fighting against this was a Jewish rabbi named Abraham Joshua Heschel. And he uh, specifically see King as an incarnation of being an Old Testament prophet. He said that King had been sent by God to announce to contemporary America what was needed. Both these figures, one a Jewish rabbi and the other a black reverend, deeply rooted in their political and social convictions of their faith, um, went on to transform that into political and social action. In a speech at a conference, Heschel said, you cannot worship God and at the same time look at man as if you were a horse. And then Martin Luther King Jr. also frequently quoted the prophets, Jesus, the apostles, uh, and Paul for grounding in his reasoning for spreading his message of justice. So the core ethic for both these men and countless others was that faith must directly uh, influence the way that we live our lives and the way, the way that we live in community. For these classic champions of justice, political and social action was a direct result of their faith. Heschel once talked about uh, taking part in the marches, and he said it felt like it was like praying with his legs. They saw this as authentically living out one's faith um, in action. And so when we look to the New Testament scriptures, we see James writing about this same idea when he says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, uh, if someone claims to have faith but no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says, says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, uh, if not accompanied by action, is dead. Then early in the same letter, James defines religion as religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after the orphans and the widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And so for Martin Luther King Jr., he saw an integral part of his responsibility as a follower of Jesus was to care for these widows and orphans, just being a euphemism for the poor, the oppressed, and the marginalized in any community. And so for us, we're left with that same call. Our communities have many widows and orphans that we must care for in their distress, both our Cana community, our Worcester community, and in America as well. However, while it's great to build one-on-one -on -one relationships with people, care for individuals, volunteer, all these wonderful things, uh, it seems short-sighted to say that, um, that we shouldn't also attack the systems that led them to, to be in that place. Every system is perfectly designed to produce the, exactly the result that it gets. And so to care for the marginalized means that we need to fight against the structures that put them there in the first place. Uh, it is one thing for the early church to create a movement outside of politics when they were living in a totalitarian, oppressive um, dictatorship, basically, uh, under the Romans. It is another thing for us in a democracy where we have a lot more tools on our belt um, to take part and share our voice in the public sphere. So to finish up this introduction, I think it would be important to state what I'm not arguing for. I'm not arguing for any specific parties or policies. I'm not advocating for a new religious right or a new religious left. Uh, I think in order for my argument to be consistent, you need to be able to apply it to people who disagree with my own politics. Uh, the core essence of my argument is that, um, that our faiths need to take direct uh, action in the public uh, sphere. So I'm not advocating for socialism, capitalism, pro-life, pro-choice. 
I'm not saying that the government is or is not the best way to take care of the poor, but to say we have this core value of caring for the poor and the oppressed, what is the best way to get there? And so the other thing I'm saying is that there are some issues that are in fact political. Civil rights was a political issue and it had a legal solution. Obviously there are cultural factors that led to it, but uh, it required legal action in order to make change. So not every view is going to be political, but some of them are. And so that's why I think in order to actively take part in this, that um, we need to also not be scared of taking part in politics. And then the other thing I'm not arguing for is a Christian nationalism. I'm not arguing for a theocracy or anything like that. The New Testament uh, narrative focuses on creating independent churches who are uh, uh, embodying little transformational like kingdom communities all over the Middle East and the Mediterranean. Those communities need to find their significance and their meaning and their purpose in God and not the state. According to the story of the New Testament, we can't find our identity in being a Democrat, a Republican, an American, or anything else, as these labels are far too unaspirational. Instead, we must identify ourselves as those living into the kingdom and following Jesus' teachings through concrete, social, relational, and political engagement. So I'm arguing that there's no such thing as a, uh, what I am arguing is there's no such thing as a neutral choice in a democracy. Some injustices are the result of social and political structures and can't be remedied without engaging with them on that level. Disengagement with politics is not neutral, it's a support of the status quo. Thank you. <clears throat> so Greg Boyd wrote, the history of the church has been largely one of believers refusing to trust crucified Christ and instead giving in to the very temptation he resisted. It's the history of an institution that has frequently traded its holy and distinct mission for what it thought was a good mission. It's the history of an organization that has frequently forsaken the slow, discreet, nonviolent, and sacrificial way of transforming the world for the immediate, obvious, practical, and less costly way of improving the world. It's a history of people who have all too often identified the kingdom of God with a Christian version of the kingdom of the world. So it took me years to come to that understanding. You see, I was a political science major in college, and I even went to a Christian college, and so we spent a lot of time wrestling with these issues of faith in the public square, wrote many papers on it. And then beyond college studies, I did an internship for a faith-based organization in Washington, D.C. during my senior year. And then before I went to graduate school, I was looking to get a job on Capitol Hill. I applied to both congressional positions as well as lobbying organizations at the time. So politics, I was kind of moving towards that as going to be, as it was going to be my career. But something happened during my time in Washington, D.C. I witnessed and how corruptive politics can be. I saw how good, sincere intentions seemed almost inevitably to get distorted and twisted. And keep in mind, this was back in 1989. And at the time, I think the rest of the country was at least partially insulated from the uh, corruptive influence of politics. But fast forward, fast forward 30 years, and I think we all agree it's a completely different story today. And even particularly over the past five or so years, 
I've come to believe that it's not possible for Christians to be actively involved in politics without soling themselves and really, at the end of the day, ruining their witness to the world. The U.S. is now divided into two us versus them tribes, per se. There's the conservative Republicans, there's the liberal, liberal Democrats. Now, I think Christians in the 60s may have been able to latch onto a single issue like racial equality and work across political lines to achieve that end. But that was a much different time. It's no longer really possible in this, area, in, in this era to do that. Today's climate is characterized by what the British ethicist James Mumford calls package deal ethics. As uh, Tim Keller wrote in a New York Times piece, uh, op-ed piece, he, he said, increasingly political parties insist that you cannot work on one issue with them if you don't embrace all of their approved positions. And you can see what happens. Uh, a well-intentioned progressive Christian gets involved to work for racial and gender equality and then finds to work effectively in the democratic circles. You also have to support their full agenda. Or in the same way, a passionate pro-life Christian gets involved in the Republican Party to work for pro-life, judiciary, and legislation. But then that person finds, too, that they also need to support the full Trump agenda. But I think there's also more something insidious at play here. And it comes worse than just tolerating these other issues as necessary evils. Uh, James Mumford said, uh, writes, he says, the great curse of our generation is how such polarization is warping the way we think through our deepest moral dilemmas. When it comes to ethics, we find our answers too readily and unthinkably according to which side of the political spectrum we see ourselves on. Values, convictions, ideals, positions on the most momentous debates of the day, beliefs about what, we should, about what should and shouldn't be done, all get bundled into liberal and conservative package deals which we then buy into. And see how insidious this is? Christians are not just going along as a necessary evil with these package deals. They're actually getting sucked up into them, indoctrinated into these, into these positions. I think of the cognitive dissonance of a, the head of a Christian humanitarian, humanitarian organization who is, if there's anyone who's responsible for caring for widows and orphans, supporting Trump's anti-refugee policies. It's just, to me, it's just, that's such a uh, poster child example of this, this issue today of the polarization. But let me bring this on a more practical level down, you know, that we, we probably see on a daily basis. I, at least I see the negative impacts of this poison climate playing out all the time on a personal level on social media. I have both conservative and progressive friends on, fresh, on Facebook who are also believers, and I see train wrecks like this happening all the time. So a person is passionate about a given political issue and posts something, and the por a portion of the readers post that they like it, and then another portion take exception and comment on you know, the wrongness of the, of the position, and then inevitably the conversation turns into bitterness, and antagonism, and often meanness. Efficacy. Uh, it means the ability to produce a desired or an intended result. Efficacy is what political activists are focused on, the ability cha to change minds and ultimately to change legislation to produce a given result. But what is the efficacy of posting a politically charged message on Facebook? 
has Facebook really ever changed minds or hearts? And someone, and I've done this before too, so I'm not putting, pointing the finger at others, we end up just contributing to the poison climate and adding to the disunity and the fragmentation along the way. It really is a fascinating time for American society right now. So it's, it's weird, someone who's sort of in his mid-20s trying to figure out like what's normal and what's not. Uh, and like if the like extreme sort of polarization that we have now is the way it's always been and now we're just talking about it more or if it's substantively different. Obviously we see a lot more headlines as you see uh, uh, whenever Trump does something, you see one side of people arguing one thing, the other side constantly arguing the other. It's primary season, uh, so Democrats are going back and forth talking about healthcare and immigration and a whole variety of other issues. And Christians on both sides of those camps are arguing that their side is the only valid Christian perspective, which is a perspective that I find toxic, um, in that uh, if you're trying to follow the teaching of Jesus, and you're applying that to a modern day situation, we're gonna come to different conclusions because we don't get legislative answers in the Bible. We get core values and then we need to uh, explore the like social, like policy things, whether or not it leads to the efficacy uh, or if it's efficacious uh, for what we're trying to do. And so you get both sides going back and forth. And then another group is gaining momentum, which are people who are just tired of this constant news cycle and the constant arguing, and become sort of cynical about the whole political sphere. That there's so much going on all the time that you, it's easy to get outrage fatigue. But I think to gain uh, a more historical Christian perspective, it's important to go back to what is the biblical narrative. So first, let's take a look at the prophets. We're going to sort of do a speed round of some of the prophets. Their job was to sound the alarm to the people of Israel as they inch closer and closer to their total destruction. And what were the two sins that popped up more than anything else throughout the prophets? It's repeatedly idolatry and injustice. So the individual rejection of God and then the social just, uh, rejection of God. So we see in Isaiah 1, uh, wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. In Amos 2, he talks about how they're uh, selling the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Uh, as you go on in Amos 6, whoop, uh, or Amos 5, I hate and despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. And he goes on, he says, let your justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. As we go to Micah 6, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil? And then he finishes that uh, what the Lord requires of us is to act justly, to love mercy, and walk humbly with God. When we go to the New Testament, we see uh, Matthew 5, the start of the Sermon on the Mount, one of the first substantive teachings we get from Jesus. And who are the people that he holds up as in highest value? It's blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the persecuted, the peacemakers. So the lowly of society and those who are suffering for the sake of the gospel. 
And then finishing back with James 127, religious that our God or Father accepts as pure and faultless is to look after the widows and the orphans in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This is a small sampling of the core narrative of the Bible that we can see that there's an emphasis on taking care of the poor, the weak, the persecuted, the marginalized. I think we ought to have these same concerns. Worcester has, I believe, uh, I think a third of the people in Worcester were not born in the city or in the state, or in the country, I think. We have a huge amount of refugees here, um, and a huge amount of immigrants, and now that I'm living in Worcester, I see it a lot more, there's a huge amount of homeless people here as well. And so while it may be exhausting engaging with the back and forth uh, from politicians about these issues and the Facebook debates, I think uh, we need to recognize the fact that like, some people don't have the luxury of being able to tune out of the debate. When someone's next meal comes as the result of a politician's decision, whether to bring jobs to a city or cut welfare or any of these sorts of political arguments, they don't have the ability um, to not engage. And so we, if we are to enter into solidarity, solidarity with them, that means that we have to remain engaged in these issues as well. So I think it's important then to jump to uh, one uh, issue that I think has a political solution, which is redlining. Uh, this is one where, um, so redlining is where city planners and different people in industry target specific neighborhoods and don't allow services there and take advantage of these groups. So for example, uh, in red line districts in Chicago like this, um, there's a long history where they wouldn't give loans, uh, specifically to communities where it was lots of um, minority and black populations. Um, so they wouldn't give them loans, and so no one could afford to buy a house. And because of that, you have people paying rent for their whole lives, and they can't build any money, as well as taking advantage in other ways. And so you end up with generational cycles of poverty. And so while some of these issues continue to this day, a huge step was made back in the 1960s to bring up the civil rights movement again that brought attention to this practice. And because the fault lies within the system, the solution seems to make sense would be within the political system as well. So in conclusion, politics and Christianity can absolutely be abused. There's a hugely long history of uh, religious powers, both Christian and otherwise, that are abused people, go to unnecessary wars. But the same remains true for theology and Christianity as well. Uh, there's a sizable population of this church that came from a particular brand of conservative Christianity that had very specific theological claims that were hurtful to a lot of people. Uh, but just as Christianity is malnourished if you're not actively reflecting on theology, so is our social activism when it is completely devoid of political engagement. We need to find better ways of exploring Jesus' teaching about social issues and then use those to create our values. And then from there, we can use economics and sociology and all these other things to figure out what the best policy is to get there, whether it be politics or not. But my argument is that there are some, some issues that are political. And then at the end of the day, I come back to that Abraham Joshua Heschel quote, in a free society, some are guilty, but all are responsible. And so we all have the responsibility to engage in this. So I've come to believe that 
politics and the church can't mix. That there is more than just a tension there, but uh, actually a fundamental incompatibility. And I wish I could spend, we were talking last night, we wish we had like four hours for this because we felt like we were only scratching the surface today, but you won't be here for four hours. Uh, so, but let me just summarize it with three points. I think the, the first one is, yes, that uh, politics is inherent, inherently Machiavellian. What I mean by that is Machiavellian, the ends justify the, the means. And you can see this by the very def definition of, an, uh, of political engagement. And don't miss this, because this is pretty striking, is that political engagement is the corporate exercise of power to influence and ultimately control a political system. And so whether you're fighting for racial equality, civil rights, immigration controls, pro-life legislation, whatever it might be, you are trying to exercise the power of a mass of people to control a political system so that it supports your cause. I know the response is, yes, Rich, but this, this corporate exercise of power is for a good, moral, and just end. And I may not argue with the goodness of that end, but I think it's important to call this a spade a spade. In the process of what you're doing, you are being Machiavellian. You are saying that your good end justifies the political means to pull it off. This happens on both sides of the political aisle. But the problem is that despite good intentions, this exercise of power is corruptive and it's abusive and it's happened over and over and over and over again throughout the centuries. Or if you saw The Lord of the Rings, it's something like this. That not shimp playing? All right, well, we will skip the uh, My Precious. Do you get that? Um, so uh, the way of Christ is completely different than that, the lure, the power, uh, the seductiveness of that ring uh, that, from the video. Bo uh, Greg Boyd says, uh, the kingdom people are to bless those who persecute us, pray for those who mistreat us, and prefer serving others above being served by others. Political parties and nations don't do this. Kingdom people are never to do anything except in a way that manifests Christ's love, never to insist on having your own way, as in fighting for our rights. This is antithetical to the way political parties and nations operate. This is radically unique. Loving, humble, servanthood demeanor manifests the holiness of the kingdom of God, and it is compromised when Christians in any way associate the kingdom of God with any political party or nation. Okay, going on to number two. So Jesus, Paul, and the New Testament church and the early church were not political. And this is one I really wish I could dive into more. But let me just summarize. I, I, find, I just find it one of the more curious arguments when I hear from Christian activists is how political Jesus was during his earthly ministry. And then, you know, kind of focus their efforts based on the radicalness of Jesus' teaching. Jesus was radical. But his activism was focused on changing the church and the hearts of its leadership, not trying to overthrow or change Roman rule. Um, you know, this was consistent. You know, so this idea, if you look at and if you look at uh, Paul's writings, was similar, similar in that regard. 
And this was consistent for nearly 300 years of the church, that believers were a persecuted minority and didn't consider the corporate exercise of power um, as just even an option, as a legitimate option. At that time, Christians were known for two things, their love, if, if this, and um, that famous quote, see how they love one another, was known because of their love and how they manifested that. And also their willingness to die. This was a period in which the term martyr came to be known as someone who died for their faith during this time. And yet all that changed in the year three, uh, 312 when Emperor Constantine was converted to Christianity and he brought Christianity and the state together. And really the church has never okay, <laughs> has never really um, recovered. And then the third one is, the third reason, is political involvement reduces Christians to tribalism. And when we become part of the, or in other words, we become part of the tribe who we are politically aligned with. Researching for today's message, I was listening to a podcast yesterday of a well-known Christian leader who was arguing that Christians should be involved in politics. And I was struck by something he said. He, he, he said, we are not part of a political movement. And I wasn't sure if he was being naive or bullheaded, but my, but my immediate response was, but you absolutely are. Whether you realize it or not, Christians are now seen as just another part of their respective tribe. There's no distinction really to the larger world. And when we do this, to borrow from Greg Boyd's words, we trade in the kingdom of God with a Christian version of the kingdom of the world. Now, having said all this, let me be clear, and, and wrapping up, let me be clear that I'm not advocating that we are called to be the equivalent of white moderates that Martin Luther King was so frustrated with during the civil rights era, who stood by and never really uh, participated. Christians are not called to an action or supporting the status quo. I fully agree that we can't stand by and do nothing to let the evil, evils of this world go on without seeking to bring about change, to bring about the kingdom of God. The ends don't justify the means, but the ends can be achieved through alternative means. What I mean by that is, do I not have my stuff? Okay. So change from a worldly perspective is what I, that definition I gave earlier, the corporate exercise of power to control a political system. Uh, but for the believer, we should have a different definition, sacrificing for others to show the love of God, to bring about changed lives and changed hearts. So caring for the orphans and the, wi and the widows and the orphans, the church did that for 300 years without getting involved in politics. And so can we. And I wish I could add I have several examples. I wish I could dive into those specific examples. But um, that's something that we can see firsthand that can be done outside of the political system. I guess what I'm trying to say this morning is that we should be conscientious objectors to political activism. Just like we have always had pacifists be conscientious objectors to fighting in a war. One can imagine the mainstream attitude in the 1940s during World War II to that conscientious objector. You know, how can you fight, not fight against the, the Nazis and Hitler? You're just letting evil win. And I think that's exactly the same attitude that 
uh, progressive and conservative Christians might have towards Christians who avoid politics today. And yet, conscientious objectors did not just sit on the sidelines and fold their arms in World War II. In fact, during the war, many served as medics or other non-combatant roles. They were able to fight against the evils of the world, but to do so in a way that was consistent with their understanding of Christ's teaching. And just wrapping it up, let me just add one last Greg Boyd quote. He says, my convictions lead me to place zero trust in the world's political system. But that doesn't mean I'm not political. A political issue is any issue that concerns the people group, the city state. Jesus made an incredible political impact, not by trying to tweak the version of the kingdom of the world that ruled his land, but simply how he lived and loved and was willing to suffer. That is how I believe people who live under the reign of God are to be political. Go for it. And so wrapping up, um, yeah, that's sort of the, the end of the debate portion, <laughs> uh, is uh, trying to reflect on what does it mean then when we have these really substantive issues that have like real connotations for people's lives, how do we, as a, how do we get along, basically? What we see in the New Testament is constant uh, calls for these diverse churches with all sorts of different theological and social beliefs to come together to recognize their identity being in Christ. And there's sort of like this, uh, this radical, uh, not humanism, the movement, humanization uh, of people, which is to say that we recognize that these issues are important, but we also recognize that we believe a lot of things because of rational thought, but also because of our fears and our worries and our past and our cultures. And so we need to take these issues seriously, but not to dehumanize someone to where if they disagree with me, they're my opponent. And it's fascinating that like sort of our claim is that the church needs to be this role um, as the two things that we're always told not to bring up when you want like peace and everyone to get along is religion and politics. Um, but I think it's important to uh, to explore what does this community mean? What, wh how can we uh, live amongst disagreement? And so I think one way is through genuine, authentic listening. And so um, sort of finish up uh, sort of our portion, I just want to express like my fear for this issue is that I would be one of those white moderates that Martin Luther King Jr. talked about. Uh, he wrote about this group as being the most, the biggest obstacle um, to his uh, activism was not the Ku Klux Klan or any of these, the cops that put dogs on them or anything like that. It was these people who kept on saying, we agree with what you're doing, but like, don't mess up society so much. You know, like, don't uh, get everyone to strike this day or to march or anything like that. I mean, people would tell him the arc of history is towards liberation, therefore just like wait it out. Um, and so that's my... Uh, my fear is that by not engaging in this political situation and seeing, responding to the problems that we see in our society, that I would be one of those people that chooses to sit on the sidelines because I have the luxury to. Um, so then I invite you to come back and give sort of your fear for on the other side. Yeah, I think my biggest fear then, 
just to summarize my part, would be a church stained and sullied for a generation because of their willing, willing participation in tribal politics. And I think that kind of captures you know, the concerns I have. Yeah. So with that, the uh, band is going to come up and play one last song. Uh, I just pray that we can sort of reflect on this as a community about how, how do we embrace the ambiguity of all these questions. Um, without minimizing the importance of the questions as well. Just a little ground 